to point out to you, the panel that the next um, appellee attorney is Christopher Bates, and you'll find him under the um, initials UU for unknown user. Mr. Bates, can you hear me? Yes, I can. And Mr. Supala, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Great. Case number 19-2918, Mohammed Hassan versus William Barr. All right. Mr. Supala, please proceed. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, may it please the court, my name is Dan Supala with the Nyland Johnson Lewis Law Firm in Minneapolis. We represent the petitioner, Mr. Mohamud Hassan, in this uh, petition for review. Um, before I get going, I would just like to briefly acknowledge my colleague at Taft, uh, Statinius, Kristen Pagel, who is listening on the telephone this morning. Um, she spent a significant amount of time working on this case, both before the immigration judge, the BIA, and preparing this appeal. So um, her name is not listed on the brief, but I, I do want to acknowledge her work in this case. Um, Mr. Hassan is asking the court to grant his petition for review and reverse the decision of the BIA that determined he was not eligible for a deferral of removal under the Convention Against Torture. Um, I'd like to talk about three issues this morning. Uh, number one, why the court should uh, not decide the base, this case on the basis of the Cherishell decision that's urged by the respondent, the Department of Homeland Security, in their uh, response brief. Uh, number two, briefly talk about the Nasrallah versus Barr case from the United States Supreme Court this past June, which held that the court, um, the jurisdiction stripping provisions um, would uh, do not apply to the Convention Against Torture, and that this court can review both the immigration judge and the BIA's decisions, uh, factual determinations for clear error. Uh, and third, why in our view, the decisions of the immigration judge and the Board of Immigration Appeals, um, in addition to the factual errors that were committed, um, uh, erred when it did not aggregate the risk of the three issues that we've raised in the brief in deciding, in concluding that it was uh, not um, more likely than not that Mr. Hassan would be tortured if he were to be removed to Somalia. Um, in its response brief, the Department of Homeland Security has argued that... Um, Counsel, let me start, Judge Loken, let me start you with the last point. I don't understand how your aggregate risk argument um, can can be can be applied to the specific intent requirement in the uh, in the CAT program. In other words, specific intent that the the, the uh, torture specific intent is it one risk or is it the does it does the torture have to have specific intent as to the aggregate risks that you're talking about in order for your client to prevail? And if not, what's the relevance of the aggregate risk argument? Um, the court should, I, I think the answer to your question is this, Judge Loken, is the court should view um, the specific intent and the risk for each of the three, um, each of the three risks that we've raised in our brief. So we've raised three things. Um, number one, the... Well, it's not, a, that's not an aggregation. That, that's, a, that's an alternative presentation. 
Because I because we argued that he's got four vulnerabilities, all we have to do is find one torturer uh, for any any of any of the one to to satisfy the specific intent requirement. That's not aggregation. That's arguing in the alternative. I, I, I agree with you that I don't think it's that it's aggregation, but I think the I think the answer to your question though is um, for the three things that we've raised, um, the court would look at the specific intent to torture of whoever's going to be doing the torturing for that particular issue. Uh, and then once the court has done that with each of those three things, look at that in the aggregate and that's no, how you aggregate. That's where, uh, stop, that's, I don't understand why you look at it in the aggregate. If there is a failure to prove there is a torture with respect to any of the categories of risk, what aggregation analysis remains? Well, I, I think so. You're you're going to have you know you're going to have an almost torture three times somehow equals a one torture with specific intent as to a risk. See that doesn't that doesn't follow. I, I agree with you. It doesn't follow, but I think the but I think the reason that um, respectfully, I think that the the that it's a, that we're looking at it perhaps in different ways is that. Um, so just to give you an example, so the first issue that we've raised is um, that Mr. Hassan would be tortured because of his clan membership um, and that the acquiescence, the, the fe Somali federal government would acquiesce in that torture. Um, the immigration judge agreed at least at the last point, and that's on addendum at page nine. Um, so let's say that the court were to find that um, that the that the Somali federal government or that a majority clan um, would does not have the specific intent to torture Mr. Hassan if he were to be returned to Somalia. Uh, well, there are still two other issues that we've raised. Um, number one, him being from the United States and what we've, what we've termed being westernized. And number two, um, that he was on the December 7th failed repatriation flight. So even if the court were to find that perhaps at least to the first issue, for example, um, that a, a majority clan did not have the specific intent to torture Mr. Hassan upon his return, the court could still look to the other two issues that we raised, um, both of those, the torture stemming from um, al-Shabaab and the Somali federal government's failure to control them uh, and their infiltration, and still determine that if those other two issues um, had reached over the what we call the 50% threshold, then the court could still aggregate those two things and it could still find um, that Mr. Hassan had uh, met his burden under the convention. Wait, wait what's, what's the 50% threshold? Um, the, well, the With 50% respect. threshold under, under the convention against torture, Mr. Hassan is required to show that it's more likely than not that he would be tortured if he were to be returned. So. Um, you know, in, in cases cases that discuss you know the um, how you how you quantify that they, they talk about it in terms of uh, the, the same sort of civil bur the burden that a litigant would have in a civil case when they have the burden of proof is you have to show that it's more likely than not um, you have to get over that 50% hurdle um, to, to show that you would prevail and so it, courts have talked about how it's not it's not a math like a, a strict mathematical quantitative analysis. Um, it, it, courts talk about that um, and talk about how you analyze the the possibility of torture and how you aggregate that. It's not a strict mathematical formula, um, but when you when you look at all three of the things 
and then you add them up and consider them in the aggregate, that's how the court is supposed to approach this under the Convention Against Torture. And, and what's your best case for this aggregate risk and 50% threshold interaction? Sure. Well, we raised three issues. Um, number one, that Mr. Hassan would be um, tortured. No, I, asked, I asked you for your best case. Then, then you can go on. Oh, best case. I, th I thought you meant you wanted me to give my best case. Not no, okay, no, no. I meant your but your your the, the the circuit authority that you're that is in your view most uh, most friendly to this argument, so to speak. Sure. Um, we've cited a case from the Fourth Circuit. It is the Rodriguez Arias versus Whitaker case. Um, it's a 2009 decision. Um, that involves um, uh, an appeal from the board. That, of that's right. You don't have to explain it. I, I did, now I know where to go look. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. And just to, to, to close the loop on that, Your Honor, the, the reason that we've cited that case is, um, it, at least in our view, it provides a good summary and analysis of how the court should think about it um, when it's talking about what it means to aggregate the risk. And part of that analysis and part of the issue that we take with the immigration judge and with the Board of Immigration Appeals decisions in this case is that it's not enough to simply put in the legal standard or the boilerplate language about um, about you know engage and in, in that the material that in the aggregate that the that the respondent in the immigration court or the petitioner on, on appeal in this case hasn't met that risk but the court is required to meaningfully engage with the material and analyze it. And so in the two decisions that we have, um, the court- now, Tell me just ask, was that, was that case a, was that a, an acquiescence focused case or was it a government torture case? The Fourth Circuit case, that was, um, I believe it did involve some um, acquiescence. It was, um, <clears throat> excuse me, it was a case from um, El Salvador where part of the um, harm that was, <clears throat> excuse me, part of the harm that was being um, dealt with was uh, the government's control of gang members in El Salvador. So it's the sort of um, traditional kind of case that you would see coming out of the Central America region. Um, but it does have parallels to our case where we have Al Shabaab. Um, you know, both running parts of Somalia as the de facto government, and even in the larger cities such as Mogadishu, um, being able to carry out bombings and having infiltrated at least low levels of the Somali federal government, including the security forces. And there's evidence that we've cited in the record that individuals who have perpetrated some of those bombings are wearing the security uniforms and using the identification of the, the um, of the uh, security forces, and so in in, in our case, um, what, what is the, the claim? What is the claim protected social group here? Um, for the the social group, it's uh, Mr. Um, Hassan's membership in the Begetti clan, um, and that is one of the other issues that we've raised in our appeal. Um, and, and now under the Nasrallah versus Bar case, the court is allowed to look at that issue and determine whether the um, Board of Immigration and the the Board of Immigration Appeals or the immigration judge um, aired when they made that factual determination. Um, and I just can briefly go through that because I think it is an important issue. Um, the Board of 
the immigration court had determined that Mr. Hassan... For your, you know, that, that's only one of your four risks that we're supposed to aggregate, or the BIA is supposed to aggregate. What's the, what's the protected social group for, for is westernized Somalis? Is that another protected group? And is, are people on that December uh, folded airplane another social group? Yes, that's and that's how it was presented to the immigration judge and the Board of Immigration Appeals. Um, the the department did not uh, and, present and so any evidence. The torturer has to have the specific intent with respect to just the one, just the sub, that particular social group, right? Yeah, the the torturer has to have the specific intent that the acts that it commits will result in torture. Um, that's part of what's wrapped up in the Cherishell case that we've talked about in our reply brief. Well, the specific intent to torture a member of the group. I agree with I agree with your reply brief. It's not specific intent to to torture a particular individual, although in a family protected group case it gets close to that. But you have to have the specific intent to torture a member of the protected group. That's that's right. I, I agree with you, Your Honor. And so you're, you're, the other two groups that we've that we've talked about would be um, Ameri like uh, you know Westernized um, Somalis. So men and women who've lived in Somalia for Mr. Hassan for 18 years and then were returned to Somalia after um, uh, in late late last year. Um, that's but it seems to me that makes the, the acquiescence issue necessarily particularized as to each group. I think I think you could argue and I think you could analyze each of those each of those issues and so you're looking for you know group one clan membership what's the evidence of um, specific intent to torture members of that group um, for the westernized uh, Westernized folks who are coming back from to Somalia from the United States. Um, what's the specific evidence or the specific intent to torture that group? Um, and then for the last group, which would be um, the 92 men and women who were on that repatriation flight of December 7th, um, what would be the evidence that those people would be specifically tortured if they were returned to Somalia? Um, all of those, all of those are set out in our brief. Um, but when the court looks at each of those three categories and the intent to torture the men and women that fall into those categories, then it aggregates the risk. Um, then the court can go through and make that determination. Mr. Sukal, you've got just about a minute of rebuttal left if you'd like to reserve it. I, I would like to reserve it. Uh, thank you. All right. Mr. Bates. Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the court. Christopher Bates for the respondent. Under the substantial evidence standard, it is the petitioner's burden to show that the evidence in this case compels the conclusion that he is more likely than not to suffer torture if he is returned to Somalia. The petitioner has not met that burden, and this court should deny the petition for review. Uh, I'd like to begin with uh, this issue of aggregation. The petitioner argues that uh, both the immigration judge and the board uh, erred in failing to uh, aggregate the risk of potential torture uh, were he removed to Somalia. Uh, in fact, uh, the board expressly addressed uh, the petitioner's aggregation argument in its decision. Uh, at page four of the record, in the board's decision, the board 
writes, the record reflects that the immigration judge considered the aggregate risk faced by the respondent regarding the likelihood of torture. And I would also draw the court's attention to the Omar case, which is a case decided just a few months ago uh, about which we just, uh, submitted a 28-J letter uh, to the court. The, the Omar case was decided after a briefing, and this case had concluded. And in the Omar case, uh, this court held that addressing risk factors uh, individually is permissible uh, so long as the board ultimately considers uh, all of those factors together. And in the Omar case, uh, the court found that the board had permissibly and appropriately uh, considered the risk factors together where the board uh, recognized at the outset that it must consider uh, all evidence relevant to the possibility of future torture and then ultimately uh, address the risk of torture, quote, overall. Uh, similarly here, the board recognized at the outset of its decision uh, that it considers all evidence relevant to the uh, possibility of future torture. It again uh, stated that the immigration judge had properly considered the aggregate risk. And then at the end of the decision, it said, uh, in sum, though sympathetic factors are present in respondent's case, uh, he has not met his burden to show that he uh, would more likely than not be tortured if he were removed to Somalia. So the fact that the board you know, went through the factors uh, individually uh, does not mean that it failed to aggregate risk, where it recognized its responsibility to consider the risk factors in the aggregate and then did ultimately consider uh, them overall or in sum, uh, as the board did here. Uh, turning to the question of uh, specific intent, the uh, petitioner in the reply brief, I think, uh, tries to frame this issue somewhat too narrowly, uh, talks about the facts of the Cherichel or Cherichel case, argues that those facts are not on all fours here. I think it's important to take a look at uh, what the board uh, said specifically on this issue. So, so the board said that the uh, petitioner had failed to establish that the government or any of the uh, potential torturers that he identifies have a specific intent to inflict torture uh, upon him. And then the board cited the Cherichel decision. And then it also cited uh, the Ademo uh, decision out of this court, uh, in which uh, this court said that a, uh, a, a petitioner raising a Convention Against Torture claim must identify specific grounds that indicate he would be personally at risk from torture. And then in a follow-on sentence, the board in this case said that the petitioner had failed to show a particularized risk. So it's not just this question of specific intent standing alone or in the abstract, but the petitioner must show a specific intent uh, with regard to him or in the words of the demo case, specific grounds uh, that indicate that he would personally be at risk from torture. And in the demo case, uh, which was a case involving an Ethiopian national who um, alleged that he had participated in activities with a group called the Oromo Liberation Front, that he had participated with activities in, with that group in the United States, and that the government of Ethiopia tortured members of that group in Somalia. Uh, this court uh, wrote that the existence of a consistent pattern of gross, flagrant, or mass violations of human rights in a particular country uh, does not, as such or in and of itself, constitute a sufficient ground for determining that a particular person would be in danger of being subjected to torture, but that again, specific grounds must exist that indicate the individual would be uh, personally at risk. And though uh, 
the petitioner in this case has submitted evidence of country reports showing human rights abuses in Somalia. Um, he has not uh, submitted evidence that, uh, that he would uh, be a particularized risk himself. He certainly has not. Counsel, this is Judge Logan. It seems to me the argument turns on the size or magnitude of the particular group. If you've got, if you've got the, the protected group is, is a family, um, it's, pretty, it's pretty easy to show that there's a torturer out there who would torture the family and the plaintiff's a member of the family. So the specific intent as to the family suffices as to the individuals. That's quite different than, than all the Oromos in, in Ethiopia who have uh, migrated to Somalia. So the size of the group here, here uh, if, if there was a torturer with respect to the, 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 the tragic December flight, I suppose anybody on the flight would, would be at risk of that torturer, to, to that torture. Uh, I think not, so, not so much anyone anyone who's coming back to, uh, from some western place as, as for who knows what you know a student or a refugee or whatever so you have uh, don't you have you have to particularize the, the the analysis to the group being uh, claimed the protected group being claimed uh, I think it certainly is, is relevant your honor to consider this question uh, with regard to how the petitioner is, is, is framing uh, his asserted likelihood of torture. Uh, certainly if it were the case that the evidence in the record compelled the conclusion that anybody on that flight uh, were more likely than not to experience torture uh, if they were returned to Somalia and then the petitioner established he were, uh, had been on that flight and therefore a member of, that, of the group, certainly that would uh, go a long ways towards uh, success for him. Uh, on his claim, and you know, just just taking that that flight uh, as, as as one example. Uh, so, Pisner talks about the news coverage that the flight received, but um, he also testified that, uh, to his knowledge, that there was only one instance in which he was identified himself as being on that flight, uh, and that that was a uh, reference in a Minnesota. A radio broadcast. He's not named as a uh, plaintiff in the class action with regard to, to the flight. And in fact, uh, one of the witnesses at the hearing, uh, I uh, don't have her name in front of me, but it was uh, the petitioner's sister's friend who was the final witness at the hearing. Uh, she testified that she had heard about the flight on social media, but that she didn't even know that the petitioner was on the flight uh, until the petitioner's sister told her. So again, the standard here, the substantial evidence standard, the petitioner must demonstrate that the evidence compels the conclusion he is more likely than not to suffer torture. So you know, even if that flight received notoriety and individuals on the flight, you know, if they were known to have been on that flight uh, in Somalia, uh, would be at a higher risk. The petitioner has not established that his it, it, it would on not flight. it would not be hard for a torturer to find out who was on that flight, even if it's not the. Uh, generally known in the press so i think i think you're if you're if you're uh, if your overall position turned on that argument i am far from persuaded i understand your honor um certainly with the standard of review also the petitioner would have to show that um the evidence compelled the conclusion that any individual on that flight uh were more likely than not to suffer torture if they were returned to somalia um, and the evidence in the record uh, does not Counsel, isn't the is counsel isn't the easy answer with respect to the flight 
that there's a, there's no basis for acquiescence proof at this point. Uh, that's correct as well, Your Honor. And that was the, the third uh, uh, point that I wanted to address uh, with Your Honors, uh, the acquiescence point. So the petitioner's uh, points to evidence in the record that al-Shabaab still has a presence in Somalia, that there are areas of the country that are uh, still under al-Shabaab control. But that's, that's not sufficient to establish acquiescence here. Um, what this court has said is that you know, the existence of a, you know, a continuing problem, uh, awareness, or an inability to stop uh, activities of a group, that that does not rise to the level of acquiescence, that it must be something closer to willful blindness. And I think if you honors take a look at uh, the cases where this court has addressed this question of, of acquiescence, uh, this case is, is closer to uh, those where this court has found no acquiescence than those cases where this court has remanded for further um, consideration of, of acquiescence. So I, I would highlight in particular the Aguinaldo Lopez case uh, that involved a, a petitioner uh, from El Salvador. And the court there found that the evidence did not uh, you know, compel a conclusion of acquiescence uh, where the country reports identified uh, efforts by the government and gang violence, uh, including a program to rehabilitate gang members. And here there is a lot of evidence in the record about the efforts by the Somali government to uh, fight and uh, to reduce the influence of al-Shabaab. Certainly, you know, they have not completed those efforts. Certainly, you know, challenges remain, but uh, there's evidence in the record about, you know, fighting uh, military conflicts between the government and between al-Shabaab about how the government has pushed al-Shabaab out of population centers back into the countryside and um, by contrast, uh, cases where this court has uh, remanded for further consideration of an acquiescence issue, such as the uh, Muawid case, uh, there, uh, that involved a, Lebe a Lebanese national who alleged uh, that he faced, faced torture by Hezbollah. And uh, there, this court said that the Lebanese government had made no attempt to disarm Hezbollah um, and that the Lebanese government's control over, Hebana, over Hezbollah was, was limited. There was also the Ramirez uh, payroll case, which we uh, discussed in our briefs, and uh, there this court remanded for further consideration of, acqui of an acquiescence issue where there was uh, evidence of wide-scale police participation in harmful actions on behalf of the cartel. So certainly, you know... Can I ask you about, uh, this is Judge Grunder, can I ask you about this aggregation theory? L let's assume acquiescence. Let's assume one torturer, al-Shabaab, in this instance. And um, the petitioner asserts three different reasons. Let's say he can unequivocally show a 17% chance for three reasons, three separate reasons. Is he entitled to cat relief at that point? Um, so, this court has not expressly addressed this um, uh, addition process. Uh, other courts, including the uh, Ninth Circuit, uh, which, let me just turn to make sure that I'm referring to the right case here. Um, I'm sorry, this is the Third Circuit, the, the Kamara case out of the Third Circuit. Um, the Third Circuit has, has said that if one you know, engages in the sort of numerical analysis and there are you know, a few different possibilities of torture that individually are less than 50%, but you add them all together and it's more than 50%, uh, 
in the Kamara case, the, the Third Circuit said that uh, in that case, uh, in that instance, that the petitioner would have met his burden. Now, this court has not um, engaged in that sort of analysis um, uh, in a case that has yet come before it. The most recent statement uh, of this court on the question of aggregation, as I mentioned, uh, is the Omar case. Um, that didn't address specifically with the question of addition. It dealt more with the question of whether the uh, board had, in fact, aggregated. And I think that proper application of Omar to this case uh, would indicate the board did aggregate uh, as it did Omar. But as to your honor's question about, you know, if one wants to quantify the risk of, of torture and add them all together, this court hasn't specifically addressed this issue, but there are other circuits that have said that um, that is the right way to do the analysis. Uh, if there are uh, no further questions for this court, uh, we would ask the court to deny Mr. Assange's petition for review. Seeing none, thank you, Mr. Bates. Mr. Supala, your rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, just a couple of brief points. Um, with regard to um, the discussion about the notoriety of the December 7th flight uh, and people learning about that, um, the witness who testified about that before the immigration judge, her name was Kadra Suleiman. And if you look at pages 341 and 342 of the administrative record, that's part of her testimony where she talks about um, how people find out about things um, in Somalia. And one of the things that she discusses is that um, news is not only passed by news stories and on Facebook and things like that, but a lot of the um, information that people are finding out about who's on what flight, you know, for example, um, or people who have passed away, things like that happens by word of mouth. And so um, the way that people find out that sort of information um, isn't always going to be just limited to the um, articles in NPR, uh, for example. So I would urge the court to look at that uh, and request that the court grant the petition for review. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Cipolla. Thank you also, Mr. Bates. The court appreciates your presence uh, before us today in our virtual forum, and uh, we will uh, consider your briefing and uh, take the matter under advisement. Counsel, you may be excused. Thank you.